But what I love to do more than all of that is I love to be here with you on Sunday morning. I definitely love the opportunity uh, to preach and to teach the Word of God. Um, This is what I love to do. Not that I don't love the other stuff, but I love this. The longer that I do this, I've preached a handful of times now, the longer that I teach, the more and more that I am brought to the conclusion and the summation that God's word is truly good. I do not mean it's just a good thing to read, which it is, right? But mainly what I mean is that it is a treasure trove of glory and of joy. God's glory, that he has sought fit to tell us his story through the pages in his book, the infallible, inspired word of God, which contains the good news of Jesus Christ and a loving God from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. Now, every time that I see a text, I get an email or I see the printout of the text that I've been charged with teaching, the Lord stirs within me um, a growing affection for both the text that I'm reading, but also for everyone who would hear it. Uh, Brothers and sisters, these words contained in the Bible are a treasure to be held. And as I continue to dig ever deeper, I keep finding more reason for joy, more reason for hope, and more reason to worship this God of ours. So this morning, our our text is no different. But my prayer this morning is that we would uh, simply press pause, okay? on everything outside of these walls. We would hold the mute button down on those busy lives of ours, our business, lunch plans in an hour or so. I'll see you there, right? Our family issues, or maybe even marital problems. And we would just sit under the word of God. So together, our joy would be found in him, and together our faith would be strengthened by his goodness and that ultimately we would fall more and more in love with Jesus. So if you have your Bibles this morning, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 as we continue in our series. Uh, This morning we'll be covering verses 11 through 22. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law in commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That was a lot. So let's pray and ask for God's help this morning. Father, God, your word is good. God, your word is enough. It is sufficient. Your grace is sufficient. So Father, I come before you now. God, and ask that your name would be glorified this morning. That if anyone remembers anything, Father, it is not uh, the words that are eloquently put together, but Father, it is your grace, it is your mercy, it is your love that we remember, God. I'm in desperate need of your help this morning. We are in desperate need of your help this morning. Let your word come forth, Father, and let it not return void. In Christ Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Therefore, remember. This is the first directive that Paul gives to his readers in Ephesus. The first instruction in this entire letter. It's crazy to think. In the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul tells us that Christians, those who are in Christ, are predestined, chosen before the foundation of the world. But what that means is that if you were to flip through this Bible, or your Bible, or any Bible for that matter, just the first two-thirds of it, you would go through what we would all call the Old Testament, right? We're all aware of the Old Testament. But what that truth means is that in that Old Testament, God had his very church in mind. He had all of the Christians in this room and the Christians to come in mind. Now, that concept is simple enough to hold, right? But its implications are incredible. And here's the thing is that I I wasn't raised in church, okay? I didn't grow up hearing songs or singing songs about Father Abraham, right? And my gospel music was secluded to the movie The Sisters Act with Whoopi Goldberg. True story, okay? But there are two instances in my youth in, in which I remember being in church, Number one, I heard about the flood and of Noah. This was third grade-ish. That God had flooded the earth because of its wickedness. And I went home that night to my mother. She wasn't with me. A friend of mine took me. And I was terrified because I wondered if God might do that to me. The other was when this lost boy, as I was, who did not have an earthly father to thank on a day like today, heard about the love of his heavenly father, that God so loved his children that he would never leave them nor forsake them as mine had left me. I couldn't tell you what the name of that church was. And though I remember just moments of those messages, looking back now, I am thankful that the Lord allowed me to hear both because I came to face both the wrath of God and the love of a good, good father. Now, some might call those two attributes of God contradictory or opposites. And that contrast is, I fear, exactly what we think about when we think about the Old versus the New Testament. Maybe even subconsciously, we look at the Old Testament and think it's just the hard side of God, right? And its benefits of reading is summed up to just seeing a different side of him, of God's character. 
all that law stuff, man, just doesn't matter no more. But church, this is untrue, right? God has given us his entire word for our benefit. And though we do see the character of God, absolutely, we also get to follow along in God's story. God redeeming love from a broken and sinful people that despite how long it is, we constantly are in a state of rebellion against him. The wrath that we deserve, we get to see God's story of redeeming us. And we get to pick up this Bible and see how Ephesians 1, being predestined, founded before, before the foundation of the earth, that God chose us, how that's married right, to the New Testament, to the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, the very beginning. One of the greatest treasures of the Bible, if not the greatest treasure of the Bible, is seeing the faithfulness of God in fulfilling his promises. This is the basis of our confidence. The New Testament, Christ, did not come in spite of the Old Testament. Rather, he came in light of and as the fulfillment of the Old just as we often say that we must read the Old Testament in light of the New, we must also read the New Testament as the fulfillment of the Old. And if we miss this truth, brothers and sisters, we miss the whole and complete story of redemption. We miss even what Paul is writing about in our text this morning. Because Paul is referencing here to the reality of circumcision and how it split the Jews from the rest of the world. And we see this enacted in the book of Genesis. We see a covenant made with a man named Abram or Abraham. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The first three words of the next verse say, So Abram went. God had called Abram to leave all that he as a man would hold dear and to go. Go somewhere that God in the future will show him. Abram trusted the Lord. Not only do we see Abram's trust for God here, but just two chapters later in Genesis... We see God promise this, this childless man, that when we meet him, he's 75 years old. God promises him that as Abraham looks up into the sky and sees the stars, as vast as they are, so would Abraham's offspring be, as countless as them. Now we get to the part of circumcision, which is what everybody's been waiting for, I know. Genesis 17 says, And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. God was calling this nation, which would be called Israel, built from the line of Abraham, and gave them the sign of the circumcision as an outward sign and symbol of his covenant and his promise. From this line comes Isaac, Jacob, King David, and ultimately the Christ. 
God was calling out from a world of sin to be a people of his own possession, to give glory to him among all the nations, or as we might know them, the Jews, right? And that's a good reminder for us this morning in terms of the audience of Paul's letter, right? Paul was known as the apostle to the Gentiles or to the non-Jews, the non-Israelites. They didn't have this covenant of circumcision. They didn't. We, friends, did not. This was only meant for the Jews. Now, those outside of Israel that wanted to come into God's people could as long as they were circumcised and adhered to the law, becoming effectively a Jew themselves. But Paul, in our text, says, remember. Because here's the reality of being a Gentile. Those promises were not for you. They were not for me. They were not ours. You couldn't enter into parts of the court in the Old Testament without fear of death. Walls inscripted that essentially said, if you come forth, death is your fault. It was the Jewish people that had those promises. They had access to the Ark of the Covenant. They had the prophets. They were guided out of Egypt by pillar of smoke and fire. They were not for you. A common Jewish prayer during uh, the time of the early New Testament, Old Testament, is that the, Gen- uh, the, the Jewish men would make are, thank you, God, for not making me neither a Gentile nor a woman. Sorry, sisters. Paul says in verse 11, the Jews slandered you because you were of, of the uncircumcised. The circumcised party, referring to the Jews, would look at the Gentiles and call them the foreskins. Right? This wasn't a playful jab at, hey, my brother over here. No, this was a scornful and shameful insult that ignored who the Jews were called to represent to the world, to bring glory to and be an image-bearing nation of God. Listen, it wasn't just the Jews. There was a massive tension that existed between the Jew and the Gentile, even in the early church through the book of Acts. But it was Jews It was the Israelites that God made the covenant with. So bad news, in case you didn't figure it out by now, you and I are Gentiles. And I am confident in this, and forgive me if I'm wrong, but everyone in this room, or at least 99.999% of us, are not Jewish Christians. Which means before Christ, we were in fact separated from him, alienated and strangers having no hope whatsoever and without God in this world. Not just vertically in our relationship to the Father, but we were separated horizontally with God's people. But we don't think about it like this, do we? We don't think of ourselves as non-Jews. And what we want to do is to skip to the good part in verse 13 when Paul says, but now. (laughs) Hold on, but hold on, right? Paul tells the Gentile believers to remember this. He doesn't want them, and he, he doesn't want us to just skip over their previous position in the world. He doesn't want that. We can't just skip those couple verses and bunny hop into the good part. 
Church, here is something that we do need to consider this morning, where we need to remember that this text is not going to hit us as hard as it did them, the church of Ephesus, right? There has never been a time in our lives, no one here that we did not have the full picture of God in front of us. At least what I, what I mean by that is that we did not have the written word of God available to everyone in this country who would want it. And I got a Bible when I went into basic training. And I hope still is the case in a lot of hotel rooms, a Bible is in that bedside table. But we are not born Christians, right? Just because we had Christian families doesn't mean that we are born Christian. That's more like a Jewish mindset. And so this may not hit us as the Gentiles would have known it, but we need to try. Because I think we are growing up in a nation surrounded by biblical language that we are just prone to skip to the good part because we know the answer. But friends, we were separated. We were without hope. We were without God. Now, God always had us in mind, like I said in the very beginning, but it wasn't revealed to us or to the church or to the Jews, as a matter of fact, until Jesus Christ came. And this is what the Bible calls the mystery of salvation or the mystery of the gospel. Because what we see now that we do get to see the whole story of God is that God often used in the Old Testament temporary physical signs that point to an ultimate spiritual fulfillment in Christ Jesus. Think about this. Jesus is the better king than David. Jesus is the better prophet. Jesus is the better and the final Adam. Just look at the Passover, a story that we are all familiar with before the Exodus. Pharaoh of Egypt did not want to let the Israelites go out of slavery, out of the bondage that they were in, but God had already promised to Abraham that it would be so. So God sent Moses and Aaron to warn the Pharaoh, but he refused. God sent plagues to affect and afflict the Egyptians, but still they refused. So God brought forth and warned about the 10th plague. God tells Moses and Aaron to take a lamb who was without blemish, and they and every house of Israel, or two houses depending on the size, would take this lamb and kill it. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they ate it. Exodus chapter 12. For God was going to come and strike the firstborn of both man and beast in Egypt. God says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. All right, church, this wasn't a theological theory here, right? This was in the moment desperate need for the nation of Israel that God would do what God said that he would do. Not only be delivered from slavery, but when, the, when they put that blood on the door, that God would pass over them. That God would do what God said he was going to do. But this itself points to an even greater reality. 
an even greater example for you and I, for the people of God, because Christ came, the unblemished lamb, and he died, and the great and ultimate, ultimate sacrifice, and he spilt his own blood by his own authority, he gave his life, and all who put their faith and trust in him will be passed over on that final day. God will pass over his people's sins because of the blood that is not physically put on our doors, but spiritually covering us through faith. Church, circumcision is no different. Okay, let's bring it back there. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14 through 17 says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that's in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. The greatest need for the Jews and the greatest need for us is that our hearts would be changed. And that's what the outward physical mark of circumcision pointed to, right? It it was a temporary covenant that ultimately pointed to the need of our hearts and the ultimate fulfillment that Christ Jesus would bring because you cannot do the work that is needed on your own heart. This type of cutting away that God is looking for was never of the flesh, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Romans 2, 28 through 29. Paul is using verses 11 through 22, our our text today, as somewhat of a conclusion and the logical next steps to verses 1 through 10. And just look at the first word that Paul uses in our text. Therefore, connecting the previous uh, text to this one right here. So in verse 1, Paul describes for us the heart of someone who is not a Christian before they know Jesus. And on this sense, there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. Before Christ, both are separated from Christ and spiritually dead. Dead as a doornail. We are not born with any semblance of spiritual life. And what we say when we say we are Christians is that we've been born again. Born again, alive in Christ. We've confessed and repented of our sin and trusted in the atoning work of Jesus and that our salvation is by God's grace, which means free gift of God through faith alone. And our salvation is marked by good works because our faith is never alone. We are brought simply from life to death. Because of the work of bringing someone to death of life is not possible for us. Jesus Christ came so that it would be so. And we get to our first point this morning. Remember who you were. Be humbled at how far you were from Christ and marvel at the faithfulness of God. 
Friends, you are either in two categories. We are either in two categories this morning. You either were far or you are far. The divide of sin affects every single one of us. And that divide is far greater than we could ever manage to scale. So if you are not a Christian, if you know you're not a Christian and you are here because either you got dragged here by somebody or somebody asked you to come and Maybe you're just curious. I'm glad that you are here. We are, we are glad that you are here. But I, I would implore you now to think of this. There is no religion that can save you. There is no other means to salvation. You cannot keep the law. You cannot do good works and bridge that divide that separates you from God. You are not a good person. But don't worry, you're in good company here. Because neither am I. Neither are we. Because what Paul instructs the church to do is to remember just that. It's not that Christians are outwardly religious for the sake of being outwardly religious. It is that Christians are inwardly changed, which affects what we do outwardly in the world. What I would ask you to contemplate is that if there is a God and there is such thing as sin, then you are far off and you're welcome here. And we would, we would love to talk to you about that. Friends, but we live in a culture that loves to say everyone sins. And it, it's true, but it's used as a defense if and when you start talking about sin, Right? If you were to say sex before marriage is sin, gossip is sin, the response might be from our culture, well, we're all sinners. Like it's this mirror or the shield that says you're being a religious meanie head and you need to leave me alone and stop telling me what I do wrong. But friends, even the honest atheist would say that as human beings, we do bad things. But a generalized faith and a general sense of sin is not what Paul is talking about here. Okay, The Bible would warn that person that, that lifts up that shield that you probably do not have a good understanding of the Bible or Jesus. And, and what, it, what it means to be a Christian is that Jesus' blood covers our sin, specific sins. Christ died for our pride. Christ died for our lust. Christ died for the adultery and the drunkenness and the gossip and the slander. So that's what you and I have to remember. Remember who we were before Jesus and let it humble us. Let it humble you and hear the gospel truly, that Christ came down into the flesh and bore the cross and bore the wrath that you and I deserve. Let the bitterness of who you were be what makes the sweetness of Jesus ever better. But to guard some of us, I, I will say this. Um, I am not, and Paul is not instructing the, instructing the church to, in, in, in like a self-mutilating way, to remember our past sin as a way of self-punishment. 
That's not what's being told here, but rather as a humbling reminder of who we were and how far we were. And this should kill any form of our pride rising up. Because if we were saved by his grace alone, and if we were far away from God and his people, aliens and strangers, as Paul describes, and that you and I did nothing whatsoever to bridge that gap, and then we have no reason to boast, do we? So we are humbled by the grace and the faithfulness of God. Remember who you were, not as a way of hurting yourself or feeling bad for your sin. Remember who you were as a reminder for how good of a Savior our Savior is. But we do need to understand the bad to understand the good, don't we? And the good begins in verse 13 with the words, but now we're there. Christ has changed everything. Christ has changed everything. We, the Gentiles, who were far off, have been brought near. And you'll begin to notice that Paul's language begins to change here. He says the Jews were, were close and the Gentiles were far off. But whose is Jesus's but both? Christ is the same to both peoples. Christ is our peace. He has broken down what was, the, what was in the way to make something new. No longer is it Jew and Gentile. It is only Jesus's. It is only in Christ. The wall of hostility is broken. Jesus' death on the cross set aside the dividing wall of hostility, thereby reconciling us in two great ways. Reconciliation between God and the sinner, and the sinner to the sinner. Before Christ, we were enemies of God. And I, and I talked a little bit about this, so I don't want to rehash all of that out, but, but I will add this. God is holy. And I know that some in our culture might not like that word because we come back to the example that I used earlier. If you were to tell someone that they should repent to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. And their response is a how dare you judge me because we all sin type of vibe. We need to remember and know that God is a holy, just God. That Jesus himself says that if you love me, you will obey me. Everything that I said stands earlier. Christ died for your sins. Christ died for David's specific sins and his state as a sinner before Jesus, that I might and that we might as Christians be presented to God holy and blameless. But until that happens, we are enemies of God and under the wrath of God. Josh said this last week, and I loved it. The call of the Christian life is to a meaningful and intentional engagement with the world. We have been given a mission and a purpose. So where we have been reconciled to God, we have been given a mission and purpose after our new birth, right? But this is where scripture countless times will warn us against those who bear the name of Christians and yet do not live as such, who are not actually Christians, if we're honest, church. 
And this is exactly what Paul refers to, except in terms of the Jews in verse 11. He says, in the flesh, by the hands, which means that they were Jews outwardly only. But can't you see here where we, and especially in our culture, might be Christians outwardly only too? I said before that we shouldn't skip to the good part. Skip the bad news and just hit the good news of the gospel because I fear that some of us who grew up in the American Christian culture just kept skipping the bad part and never actually got to the news of needing Jesus more than a cultural icon or a genie or the fake Jesus that just says, yeah, yes, to whatever you need and whatever you want, yes. And, and we can say that we play for the team we can even wear the jersey, right? What would Jesus do bracelets? And the cross necklace, Greek or Hebrew on our arms that I have, but that doesn't mean that we play for the team of Christ. And so it does take an honest and humble look at the holiness of God and our genuine repentance for our sin because Christ died that we would be reconciled to God that the wall of hostility between us would be torn away because Christ. I've said this a lot, but I'm going to continue to say it because if you walk out of here remembering anything that I've talked about, circumcision, whatever, hear and remember this, that Christ died for the ungodly, that we might be reconciled through his perfect atoning death, presented as sons and daughters to the Most High. But we need to see that we need a Savior before we can see a Savior. And when we are born again, we are a whole new human being. We are completely different. Now, I'm not saying that we're perfect. Like That's where we take things to the extremes. Well, you said we're perfect. I'm not saying we're perfect. We do, in love, tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. And to tell people to trust in Jesus, to turn from their sin, not so that we can look religious to the world, like the Pharisees, but that the lost would be saved, just like we were. The next reconciliation that Paul covers and that we do need to come to grips with is the reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. Now, here's the tricky one, okay? Because as I said before, this, this kind of cultural tension that existed, we cannot match today. One commentator on this text puts it like this. None of our racial barriers, our nationalisms, our iron curtains are more exclusive or unrelenting than the separation between Jew and Gentiles in biblical times. The Jews believed Gentiles were created to fuel the fire of hell. Now, those who were not Greek, right, or the immediate people, group of Gentiles, like the Jews, right, would be called barbarians. By the likes of Plato and the Roman Livy, who was a historian, said that the Greeks waged a truceless war against people of other races and against barbarians. So it wasn't just the Jews, it was the Gentiles as well. So how are they reconciled? How are we reconciled? And we know the answer, right? It's the Sunday school answer, Jesus, right? But it's deeper than that. 
it goes farther than just the word and the name of Jesus because Jesus did something. Jesus abolished the old law and the old covenant, fulfilling them. They are no longer needed because as the author of Hebrews explains, Christ brought a better covenant. This distinction is no longer there. The covenant of the physical circumcision and the law have passed away. And in doing so, Christ destroyed what separated God's people from the rest of the world. That all might become the people of God. Now it's helpful, and you'll read this throughout your time of reading the Bible, that Jew and Gentile and Israel are still mentioned and are good distinctions in the Bible because it gives us a framework of context and culture and God's people, what he has done from the beginning. But what I am saying is that a fundamental reality of the gospel, and what I mean by that is I really like that saying, is there is an objective truth in Jesus Christ meaning that it is true regardless of our opinions of it. The objective truth is that where Jew and Gentile stood, God made one man instead. It's not like the Jew and Greek held sand jars and poured them together into a glass vase. I'm not knacking on that, okay? That, it looked really cool at my sister's wedding. But rather, God abolished what separated them. And now... We are one in Christ by our faith. We are no longer under law. We are under grace. And here's the hard implication of this, brothers and sisters. You can be reconciled to other believers. You can be reconciled to that friend or that family member. Now, the response to this that we might have in a way to justify ourselves from being reconciled is, well, you don't know what they did to me or my family. Tell me that we haven't said that, at least at some point in our lives, or we haven't at least heard that. Or I just prayed about it, and I just left it in the Lord's hands. You should pray on it. Church, we, we should pray on it, absolutely. But when we talk about the depth of human relationships and the sins that occur within it, not weather. <laughs> Not only what they've done to you, but also what you have done to them. Okay. Sin goes both ways. And, and, and Tad covered this a few weeks ago in a, in a different sermon series. Very rarely is it just one person's sin that's affecting the relationship, right? It's almost always both. And in our minds, when I talk about this, when we talk about reconciliation between human beings, our minds want to go to the extreme examples, don't we? We do. We want to deal with the extremes of abuse, but hold off on that. Let's just deal with the everyday ones. We are a church body. We are a family. And regardless of how much we love Jesus, it's not just possible. It's not just likely. It will happen that we will sin against one another. And those conversations will be painful. I, and I have been in close relationship with brothers in this church for going on five years. And I can tell you, we have hurt each other. And reconciliation is always good and always possible. And we are always able to move past it. But both parties have to be willing to humbly submit to the word of God. And it, it might take having help through a pastor 
or a mutual friend who's godly and be object- objective and not just puff each other up. And if both parties are willing to do that, church, by the gospel, by Jesus's death that reconciled the most extreme version of hostility in Jew and Gentile, God and sinner, then it is possible for you and I, you and your friend, us to be reconciled because together we are brothers and sisters respectfully in Christ. Now you have more in common with the brother in Christ than you do with a lost family member or a lost friend. You have more in common with a brother in Christ from India that you've never met before than your family who are not Christians. You are Christ's. You are born again. You are no longer of this world. And we might try to say and and kind of justify it by saying, well, we forgave them. That's good. But Jesus didn't just forgive you. Okay, he reconciled you. So long as it is up to you and to us, we need to seek reconciliation with that person. What I think is that if, if we'll find that we are unwilling to reconcile, it's indicative of an unforgiving heart. Colossians 3.13, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you have a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now, this is why I said don't go to extremes because there is a real hurt and a real pain that happens in close relationships. And maybe having a a reconciled or a restored close relationship with somebody is not wise or even possible. And to that, I would still say it's your job to forgive. It's our job to forgive, to at least extend the hand of reconciliation to the degree That might just say, there's no bitterness on my side, brother or sister. There's no hate or anger. I have forgiven you, and I hope you can forgive me where I have gone wrong as well. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Mark 11, 25. So long as it rests on us, brothers and sisters, seek reconciliation because you've been reconciled to God despite how far you were. And you've been brought near. And when reconciliation is not possible because of that person's unwillingness, we Christians are still called to forgive. And our forgiveness stems from our humble remembering just how much we needed to be forgiven ourselves. Now, if you recall at the beginning of this sermon, I labored, really labored to build this foundation on the Old Testament on the covenant with Abraham. And we have seen how circumcision was a temporary sign and seal, but now we have the spirit. God does does not work through our physical flesh and cutting that away, but rather through our heart. And before that covenant, that is the covenant of the circumcision, God made us a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. You remember that? And I can tell you this morning, that if by faith you are in Christ, then you are a part of that fulfillment. You are a part of that fulfillment. You are brought near by the blood. And this way that Paul depicts this in the book of Romans is that Israel, God's people is like a tree 
And you and I, upon a right relationship with Jesus, are being grafted into that tree. Romans eleven seventeen through 24 says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches, but the root that supports you. Arrogant, I'm sorry, arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward others who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted in, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? That was a lot, right? Here's the picture. You and I are grafted into Israel, into God's people, but God's people by their unbelief have been stripped off of that tree. It is by faith that we are the people of God and we need to continue in faith We are fellow citizens. We are members of the household of God. But Paul warns us, and and this is where for us today, church, and modern America, we really hit the soft spot. We need to know both the kindness and the severity of God. Friends, for some reason, we have kind of grown into this position. And I say we, right, as those who claim Jesus as a whole here on earth, not the Hub City Church as a whole, that we think that we are Israel 2.0. The better version, man. That America is this great nation of God built on scripture and we need to return it that way. That's what the Pharisees thought too. Because you and I, having the whole set of the Bible, we can look at both the Jews of Jesus' time, the Pharisees and the Gentiles. And though you and I are Gentiles, by definition, we can often look like and act like the Jews that Jesus rebukes and warns. There are so many, so many who think that their Christianity has less to do with the restored relationship with Jesus through faith, marked by repentance, and more to do with just being a good person and saying that they believe in God that they might even believe in the name of Jesus, but even the demons believe. They are born to Christian parents or or went to church every Sunday and they still go, so they they check the box off. They, They themselves think that they are the authority on spiritual things, just like the Pharisees did. And should you bring the Bible to them, it's like you offended them. Now I say them, but if this is you, please note It's like you offended them. And we can say, don't you see here what what you're doing is wrong and against the Bible? And 
man, you should trust in Jesus and stop, stop doing that. And they will brush it off because they know just enough Christian language to get by, to exclude what you're saying. We need to be watchful, church, that we don't fall into the same exact thing. We, to be clear, this is not a rally to arms of culture and keyboard warriors, okay? But as the church of Jesus Christ, we are called to care deeply about the things of the Bible. We are called to be faithful to the doctrines of the Bible because this is God's word. And when teachers and so-called Christians distort and abuse and misuse the word of God, possibly sending thousands to believe that they are saved when they are not, that should hurt us. Church, that should break our hearts. Now, I don't, I don't say this just because to be the, the guy that says it, right? But there are some churches, quote, today that simply deny the Trinity. They are called churches, and their pastors are on TV and writing books, but deny one of the fundamental realities of the gospel, and this is a heresy that was labeled as so over a thousand years ago. There are churches that would say you are saved by grace, but sorry, if you don't speak in tongues, you're not actually saved. I got hit with that one. Churches and so-called pastors misusing the role of the family and the roles of husband and wife to manipulate and to destroy God's good design for their own deviances, either sexual or otherwise. Men and women being tricked by wolves in sheep's clothing, promising that if you sow this seed of $1,000, God will give back tenfold, that you are giving to the Lord and your future. This is sick. Okay, this is sick. And Jesus entered the table and into the temple and drove, all, drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. You can't tell me that when we turn on the TV and when the atheist and we're the, le the leftward, you know, uh, kind of radical religious folk that we do not see scarily what looks like the New Testament Pharisees. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Matthew 23, 25. Church, in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, Pastor Tad discussed new birth and answered the question of who is a Christian, one who is spiritually alive. In verses 9 and 10, Josh asked the question, wouldn't heaven be better? And yes, it, it, it is, and it will be, but you and I as Christians, we have a mission, and he gave us a purpose as the church. And in our verses today, we see who the church is. The church are the redeemed people in Christ, united together by faith, 
in the fulfillment of the Old Testament by a shared way of salvation, a common mission, and one identity built and founded on Jesus Christ. This is who the church of Jesus Christ is. Out of an old hymn called The Church's One Foundation in the 1800s, it says, Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with vision glorious, her longing eyes are blessed, and they and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Friends, all of us are in danger of falling into the law-filled living of the Pharisees. That we make the laws of men equal to the laws of God and fall away from the biblical truth. And just as easily, all of us can make Jesus be who we want him to be and adding him to the other lower G gods and idols in our lives, just like the Gentiles. As a local church, let's be set on the main things, the word of God, the lost needing good news, and let us know Christ Jesus and him crucified. And if we find ourselves this morning leaning in one direction or the other, brother and sister, it's okay, turn back, repent, and return to what the Bible says. Because together, look at verse 22 of our passage today that we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Woo. So let's turn from it. Let's turn from it. Let's heed the warnings. Let's, let's believe the good news of the gospel. And in just a moment, uh, we, we will be partaking in communion. Now, depending on how you were raised, your religious upbringing you might just be used to taking communion. But this sacrament we take as the church as a way of remembering. Luke chapter 22, verse 19 says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is, light, is the new covenant in my blood. So we remember Jesus. We remember the new covenant, the fulfillment of the old, reconciling us who were lost. And this sacrament is for the born again in Christ. Paul tells us that we are to partake of this communion, that when we do, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And therefore, we are to examine ourselves, brothers and sisters, lest we take of it in an unworthy manner, drinking and eating judgment upon ourselves. So if you are used to doing this out of religious practice, or you know that you are not a Christian, please do not partake. Do not partake this morning. It will not be a benefit to you. But rather, rather sit and consider, repent and seek and believe the Lord. 
I'll be up here. Our, our pastors will be up here in the front should anyone like prayer. And I'll pray for us and we'll bring the table forth and when and if you are ready, we can partake together in the Lord's communion. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, God, I am so thankful for you, Lord. You are the great sustainer. And there is truth that we need to know, God, that we, we were far off from you. We are and were Gentiles. But now in Christ Jesus, we have been united as one being in Christ. We are being grafted into your people, Father, if we continue in faith. So God, I pray for every man and woman and child who would ever hear these words, who would ever sit in this building. Father, keep us. Guard us and warn us. Not going into the way of cultural Christianity, but sticking close to you. Your word, Father. And we trust now, God, that as we partake in communion, God, that you will come back for us. That we are remembering your death. And that's the bad news, the death. But we are also remembering that you have been raised from the dead and are seated at the right hand of the Father, the perfect propitiation for our sins and the perfect mediator for us. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. It's in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.